watching me. Well, good morning. Well, we are... Heidi, would you be able to turn the Jonathan tab down ever so slightly? Down, yeah. Thank you. Wonderful. Look at that. Uh, well, last week we finished 1 John, and this week we're moving into 2 John. So there's only uh, two more weeks to go in our series on the letters of John. I know you're all very sad about that. Um, but I wanted to, as always, go over what we talked about last week. So the previously on, sort of one of the big points of last week was the, the final closing phrase where John said, little children or my dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Uh, and while he was talking to real people about real things, there was idolatry in the town that he was writing this to. It's also something that can be drawn 2,000 years later uh, about the things in our life that are more important than God. And so that's where we sort of landed last week. And so now we're moving into 2 John. Uh, and so I've got a little bit of just background information on 2 John here uh, before we de delve into the actual 13 verses that we'll look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter in the entire thing, and it's only 13 verses long. Uh, which leads us to the nickname of these two books is actually the postcard epistles. Uh, second and third John are so short, uh, they could fit on the back of a postcard. So they're very, very short, unlike traditional letters. It was read for us earlier, and at the very end, John's actually going to say, I could write you a whole bunch of stuff, but I don't want to waste the paper. Instead, I want to come and visit you so we can talk about it face to face. Uh, I both like that and I don't like that. I like that because this means it's nice and short for us and we don't have to worry too much of, you know, we don't have to spend eight weeks on, on this book of the Bible. I don't like it because no one sat there and recorded what that was about. Like, can you imagine John, who's getting on in age here, uh, he's, he's well into his 80s, like, I just imagine like someone like John Bell coming in like with a walker and then coming in and he's like, all right, listen up, guys. We need to talk about what you're doing. Like, can you imagine that conversation? I think it would be fantastic to, to be a fly on the wall. Uh, but these are the postcard epistles. This is the second shortest book of the Bible with only 13 verses in the entire book. Um, and Second John warns against the same first teachings as mentioned in First John. And this is one of the reasons why we're preaching through the letters of Don, John, not just books 1, 2, and 3. Uh, but really, I want to show you sort of the connective tissues between 2 John, which is kind of shorter than, the than 1 John, uh, which is then in itself shorter than the Gospel of John. But there is a connective tissue that you get when you have the same author uh, saying, talking about similar themes. There's this connective tissues. And so in the 1 John, we talked a lot about sound doctrine, and he's going to mention doctrine here in his letter talking about his letter, uh, this letter was addressed to the elect lady and her children. Now, we have no idea who that is. If anyone stands up here and says, well, it's this person, this person, this person, they're kind of making it up because there's nothing in the Bible or even in Christian tradition that tells us who this elect lady uh, and her children actually are. We can assume that it's actually a leader of a house church. 
Now, despite what some of you might think, uh, a lot of the house churches, a lot of the early churches were actually led by women. Uh, a lot of people think this, you know, this was a, a male-centered society, and in a lot of ways it was. But when it came to the expansion of the early church, it was actually driven forward a lot by the leadership of women. Uh, women opening their houses to hosp- in hospitality and saying, come on in, this is a safe place to meet. Look, let me put it this way. This is Major Bev, all right? This is, this is Major Bev opening her house and saying, oh, the cookies are on, come on in, there's coffee in the pot, come on in, let's talk about Jesus. And, and that's kind of what it was. These were house churches. These weren't huge mega churches with 20, 30,000 people in them with multiple services on a Sunday. These were small, intimate groups, maybe 5 to 15 people, and they would get together. The apostles would write letters, church elders would write letters. They would take the scriptures uh, of the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testaments yet. They would take the Old Testaments, they would break them apart, they would they would read and they would uh, read through some of the prophecies and then they would take some of the letters maybe of Paul or John and say, uh, when the Old Testament is talking about this, it's actually a fulfillment of this prophecy. Look how these two connect. And they would break bread with each other. Uh, they would eat together. They would drink together. When one had a problem, it was everyone's problem. So they went out and solved it together. If someone uh, was short on the rent, they would take a collection and help pay for the rent. If someone didn't have food on their tables, they would get together and make potlucks and, and, and bring the casseroles, you know, that ca- tell me that's not how church is supposed to be. Like, right? Like, that's, that's what church is supposed to be. Now, you, you'll see this word here, hospitality. Um, it, it's coming in two different ways. We're going to talk about false teachers being open to hospitality, but then also the hospitality of Christians. And I believe firmly that one of the things we're called to by Christ is to be hospitable. So when Jesus uh, was talking and he said, uh, if anyone gives a person a a cold glass of water in my name, if anyone feeds someone else in my name, if anyone gives someone clothing in my name, if anyone visits someone in prison in my name, they've done it to me, that was Jesus encouraging us to hospitality. That this Christianity thing isn't just a closed door, uh, you have to dress a certain way, look a certain way, have a certain amount of money, uh, do X, Y, and Z, but rather we're supposed to open ourselves up and be hospitable to everyone. Amen? Amen. The elect lady and her children, her children probably refer to the church family around her, that she was sort of this uh, elder lady of the church that she put together, this house church, and then there were some people who came into it. And this is the point, and we'll get to this a little bit later on. But essentially, false teachers were using the kindness of Christians to gain influence within their congregations. And so false teachers, people who had learned the Old Testament, had knew, knew something about Jesus, yet was not following true doctrine, was coming in and saying, I'm a Christian, you need to open your house to me, would come in and then lead people astray. And that's what John is writing and warning against in this particular epistle. He'll summarize later and say, uh, and I'll say this, John's letter spoke of this danger and warned against opening one home to the destroyers of the faith. And only when you find agreement on sound doctrine will you find meaningful fellowship. These are sort of the, the, the key underlying texts, and I wanted to uh, get these out of the way right on top so that as we go through, and we are going to go through every single verse of this, chapter, of this uh, book of the Bible today. It's only 13 verses, so you should be able to stay awake uh, the Seahawks played on Thursday, so you have nowhere to be. Um, 
and we won, amen. Uh, but I wanted to show you some of these foundational principles so that as we're reading through, they open, you can open up and be like, ah, that's what that weird guy was saying. All right, I'm with you now. So if you have your Bibles open, Second John chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, who I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, God's mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. His opening salvo mentions the word truth four times. That's not a mistake or something that's just fallen by the wayside. That's not something that he's just done because he likes the word. When John uses a word and uses it over and over and has repetition, it's to bring attention to it. Uh, so when, Jesus, uh, when, when John rather says, uh, truth, 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 what he's really doing is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus said he was the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. He's invoking Jesus without mentioning Jesus' name, saying, uh, if you believe in Jesus, you believe in the truth because Jesus was the truth. If you believe in truth, you believe in Jesus. And we've got to get this together uh, as a foundational thing. Uh, and here's why I think he does this. When, when you have a discussion, when you have two people who uh, uh, have differences of opinion, you have to find the starting point to resolve the difference. So I'll give you an example here. If I'm arguing with someone saying that people aren't human, and they're arguing that humans are in fact human, we have to come to a basis of the definition of the word human. And if I define human as a cow, and he defines a human as a human, we're never going to see eye to eye, because we, can't, we don't have that foundational uh, starting point, if you will. So when you're arguing with a person or having a conversation with a person or trying to convince someone of something, debating, I'm not even talking like argument, like screaming matches, you know, throw the, throwing the, the, the knives in the kitchen. I'm letting you know about my home life a little too much. Uh, <coughs> with Natalie, not, not Nikki, that's with my sister-in-law. No, um, you have to, when, when you're debating with someone and trying to come to a consensus, you have to start with some common ground. You have to define the parameters of where you want to go, right? Otherwise, you really do just waste your breath and you don't say anything. And so what John is trying to do here is set the parameters within the opening salvo of his greeting, knowing that he wasn't going to write an exhaustive epistle, that he wasn't going to waste reams and reams of ink on this, that he was only going to write 13 verses in a postcard format. He was right off the bat in his greeting laying this foundation so that when he moved on, people had already agreed with the foundation of what he was trying to say. Truth, truth, truth. We believe in Jesus, and that's our starting point. And remember that he's writing to Christians, not non-Christians. Uh, if you want to evangelize, go for it. Don't use 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to do it, because he's writing these epistles for Christian encouragement and edification. He's not writing these books for evangelism. 
Now, I know that sounds really weird. There's plenty of other books that you can use for evangelism where Jesus is talking to Pharisees, where he's talking to tax collectors and prostitutes, and he's talking to lepers, and he's talking to the outcasts of society. There's plenty of material in the Bible that you can use for evangelism. However, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John is specifically written to Christians in a Christian context about Christian behavior. And it bugs me when people take uh, a commandment from 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John and they apply it to non-Christians and say, see, look, this is you. Uh, No, he's talking to Christians here. So he's used that uh, in the first three verses, he's used that as a foundation of where we're going, that Jesus is truth, we get truth from Jesus. Amen? Do you agree with that? If you don't agree with that, then we have to define the parameters of our argument. So I can keep going if you want. No? All right, moving on. Verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Uh, Some of their children, remember children here, is a way of referring to people in the church who are Christians, who maybe don't have a great experience with the Bible or great experience in the church tradition, who are learning and finding their way as much like an infant... uh, doesn't know how to walk, doesn't know how to talk, doesn't know how to read yet, but after you instruct them a certain amount of time, then they can gain that ability. Uh, For some reason, baby Daphne absolutely loves me. I don't know why, uh, but she does, and don't think I don't rub that in my wife's face every chance I get. But she can't read yet. However, after time and effort put in by parental figures and teacher figures, she will eventually learn how to read. And so she right now is a child, but she will grow up into a preteen and God forbid a teenager, that's gonna be fun. Um, I've already got gray hair, it's gonna be worse. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as you were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this love that we walk according to his commandments, this is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. He's used the word walk a couple of times, and it's prominent in this section, uh, and it refers to everyday ethical conduct. It refers to everyday Christian behavior. He's saying if you know the truth, you believe the truth, Jesus is the truth, and all of that you believe, then you actually need to live your life in accordance with that belief. Otherwise, you're a hypocrite. You see, he, he, he says, if you love Jesus, and Jesus told you to love others, but you don't love others, then what you're doing is being a hypocrite. Uh, we, we expounded upon this a lot in the book of 1 John. He goes over this again and again and again, and he goes to the point in 1 John where he says, if you don't love, then you're not a Christian. He says, if you don't love, you're not saved. If you don't love, then you're not doing what God has commanded you to do. If you don't love, then God has nothing to do with your life. It sounds very harsh, and it is harsh because he's trying to get people, he's trying to get Christians to understand that the way you act in the world matters. The way, if you proclaim yourself to be Christian, the way you act matters because it can have a direct effect on those who are not Christian. And that matters because the Bible says that God desires all people to be saved. 
So if your behavior as a Christian gets in the way of another person's salvation, how do you think that makes God feel? Right? And so he hammers this again, and this is not really a point that I want to hammer in this particular sermon. We talked about it a lot last week and through the sermon series, but again, it comes up, so I want to bring it up again, that we need to love. All right? Love, love, love. Verse 7. See, I told you we're moving through this very fast. Only 13 verses. We're already at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Uh, Here the word antichrist is defined by John Wesley is not the antichrist that you find in the book of Revelation. It literally just means against Christ. This is not like the big bad, this is not Satan, this is not the devil. What he's saying is if anyone comes into your midst, they claim to be a Christian, but they don't act like it, they don't talk like it, and they try and leave you astray, they are clearly opposed to what Christ teaches. They are, in fact, anti-Christ. We're coming up to Christmas time. You put anti-freeze into your car because you don't want it to freeze. Anti-against-freeze. Make sense? Verse 8, watch yourselves. Watch yourselves. It doesn't say, let the pastor watch you. Let the church elder watch you. It says, watch yourselves. The responsibility for identifying false teachers lays on you as well as me. I'm, I'm instructed to, to watch out for you in different parts of Scripture, but this one particularly jumped out at me this morning. Uh, watch yourselves. You have a responsibility in and of yourself for your own salvation, to guard it, to make sure you're not being led astray. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in the wicked works. In the first six verses, he was talking about Christians. He was talking about the fellowship of believers. He started with a common point, truth and Jesus Christ that we agree on. Uh, When he got to verse 7, he sort of switched gears a little bit and said that there are going to be people who claim to be Christian, who know the right words to say, the right prayers to offer. They know when to raise their hands, want particular songs, when to clap along, when to do this, when to do that. And they're going to sound very, very uh, influential. They're going to sound very learned. They're going to sound... Uh, much like they've got it all together, except that when they start teaching, they're not teaching sound doctrine. And what was happening here was doctrinal confusion was a threat to the congregation's integrity. Around this time in church history, uh, a lot of doctrine hadn't been written yet. Now, I I know that sounds kind of strange because like well the bible's already been written uh doctrine is our way of articulating things uh it took many people a lot of time to sit down and actually hammer out specific wording 
so that it wasn't going against in any way, shape, or form Scripture. And so at, at this point in church history, a lot of doctrine hadn't been worked out, uh, which made it very easy for someone to come in and say, well, you've heard this person preach over here uh, and say X, Y, and Z, but I'm telling you really that what we should be talking about is A, B, and C. And those people were coming in and leading people astray and splitting congregations. Uh, if you can imagine a house church of 5 to 15 people having an argument over something, that can split that group in half and, and really cause some disruption and destruction. And so what was happening was doctrinal confusion was coming into the church. I want you to imagine how difficult it would be to guard against this. If you had in a, in a city like Rome, a hundred house churches, all of five to 15, how do you protect every single one from someone coming in and giving doctr doctrinal confusion? How do, you, how do you ward against that? How do you protect against that? Well, one of the ways that they did it was they wrote letters. And so when Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome that we call Romans, it would have been sent to the largest church and then he would have had people hand copy it out and distribute copies to all the small churches, the house churches, so that real doctrine was being handed out so that they could identify against false doctrine. And he, here's why this matters. Do you think that there are not people in this church today who are false teachers and leaders? Um, I've talked about this before. I'll talk about it again. If I get in trouble, I really don't care. There are false teachers in this country that have mega churches. There are teachers in this country, pastors, who spend millions of dollars on private jets while ignoring their communities. There are people who claim to be Christian in this country that write self-help books and put them in the Christian section. And in case you're wondering, self-help Christian books is an oxymoron. Those two things don't together. Now, I'm not saying that, that self-help books aren't useful in a particular context, but self-help Christian books are an oxymoron because the entire idea of Christianity is that you can't help yourself, that you need Christ to help you. And so when you have a, a Christian author who gets a $15 million advance on writing another Christian self-help book, and in that book he says, you can do it yourself, you can get your own salvation if you work on it, you don't have to suffer anything, you don't have to go through trials or tribulations, if you're a Christian then everything in your life is going to, to work out good, and then they put that book in the Christian section of Barnes and Nobles, and someone who's not guarding themselves like you're supposed to, who doesn't have a pastor to guard your hearts, uh, they, they pick that up and they read that book. That's how false doctrine gets into the church. This came to a head uh, a few years ago. Um, someone, and, and I've, again, I've talked about this before. It's a good illustration, so I'll do it again. Someone wrote a book called The Shack. Now, The Shack is about a father who lost his daughter... And for some reason, his name is Mac. Mac goes to the shack. And in the shack, he meets God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And on the surface, it seems like a perfectly fine book. 
uh, you would find it in, Christ you still do find it in Christian bookshelf, uh, bookstores. You find it in Christian fiction sections. On the back, it's endorsed by Michael W. Smith, who is a Christian singer and a prolific Christian singer. Uh, the problem with the book is that it teaches modalism. Now, I know a lot of you aren't as fascinated by church doctrine as I am. I'm sorry about that, but I'm going to go on a little bit of a rant. Modalism was a belief that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit uh, didn't have three distinct persons, but rather had different modes, and in different parts of history, they appeared in those modes individually, but they were not three separate persons in one essence. And so what this book actually teaches is that uh, the Holy Trinity comes in these different modes rather than coming as three separate individuals. It's modalism, and it's doctrin uh, doc uh, doctrinally heretical. And yet you find it in the Christian section. And so as a congregation, if you go to the Christian section of Barnes & Noble, if you go into a Christian bookstore and you see that on the shelves, you assume that it's already been vetted by other Christians who know more about doctrine maybe than you do, and you grab it off the shelf, you read it, and that's how doctrine and heresy creeps into the church. Plus, it's just badly written. Matt in the shack is just ridiculous. Come on. The context of what John says, he uses, uh, if anyone comes, makes it clear that what he's referring to, and I, I really want to emphasize this point, is he's referring to traveling teachers and preachers. What he's not referring to is non-Christians. Again, I, I, I built this up at the beginning of the sermon. I'm going to re-emphasize it now. What he's talking to, uh, talking, uh, who he's talking to and what he's talking about is Christians and Christianity. And so people use this particular verse to say that Christians shouldn't have any relationships with non-Christians. See, look, it says it in 2 John that if anyone comes to you that's not teaching Christianity, you ought to have nothing to do with them. He's specifically talking about Christian leaders and teachers who are proclaiming that they love Jesus but don't who are proclaiming that they have the truth but don't, and they're coming into these places and trying to teach people false doctrine. He's not talking about non-Christians. You can have, in fact, the Bible demands that you actually do have relationships with non-Christians. Because if Christians isolate themselves and don't have relationship with non-Christians, how are they ever going to experience the love of God? How are they ever going to see a Christian behaving the way that a Christian is supposed to behave and say, man, that is attractive. I want to know what's going on in their lives. We're supposed to be living Christianity as a joy-filled life. We're supposed to be enjoying this. Now, I enjoy it because I'm the one that gets to talk. Maybe you're not enjoying it because you all have to listen. Just a maybe. I enjoy it because I've never been in the same room with my sister-in-law where I've been able to talk this long without getting interrupted. And I just got interrupted. No. <laughs> do you get this point? See, what, what people do is they take this, this particular teaching and they're like, no, let's isolate ourselves. Let's cloister ourselves. Let's keep them out and us in. And we'll solidify ourselves and we'll get into this tight circle and we won't worry about what's going out. We'll just make sure we're this and us and us and us and that's not the point of Scripture. The illustration is really simple. Christianity needs to be a circle of people facing out, not a circle of people facing in. Right? 
if you have your backs to the world, it's easy for you to come under attack because you can't see what's coming. So there's practicality in that too. If you're facing in with your back to the world, how can you see people in distress who need help? If you're facing in with your back to the world, how can you see the people that are dying in their sinful nature, where Christ called you to show compassion and love and to be the hands and feet of Jesus so that those people can join the circle? And here's the thing, if you flip that and you're in that circle with your backs facing each other and you're facing out into the world, you're not going to get an attack that you can't see coming because you're facing out and you know that your Christian brothers and sisters have your back. That's what John's talking about. You can boil down some of this terminology and you can make it really quite simple. As Christians, we are to love one another, we're to love the world. We're not to be cloistered from the world. We're to show hospitality. We're to show love. Not only that, such a welcome would give the impression that you're actually endorsing false teaching. This can get a little tricky. Uh, some of the people, some of the, the, these huge megachurch pastors who in their behavior and writings clearly isn't Christian put on massive conferences, giant conferences, where I am sure 99.9% of the people going our Christians love Jesus and are doing what they're supposed to be doing. But attending something like that gives the impression that you're endorsing that particular preacher. And it's a fine line to walk. And so in all things, we need to make sure that we're not endorsing. Oh, see, look, I lost this. I thought I had it, but then I must have put it in the wrong section. Paul warns, this is exactly what I was just talking about. Paul actually warns against overzealous separation from non-Christians in 1 Corinthians 5. He actually says uh, in 1 Corinthians 5 um, that false, it's false Christians that require caution and rejection, but it is non-Christians that you need to love and embrace. Because here's the thing, they don't know any better. They, they don't know Jesus, they don't know what Jesus commands, so how can you hold them accountable to what Scripture says? Right? It's the old argument... Um, Trying to convince someone that the Bible is true from the Bible is very difficult because they need to believe the Bible in order to be persuaded by the Bible. So the Bible is not where you start to convince someone about Jesus or his love. The place that you start is by living a life. In fact, uh, Peter says this in, in 1 Peter. Live such good life among the heathens or pagans that they see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter, the apostle... The, the follower of Christ said that you need to live such good lives amongst those who are non-Christians that they see your good deeds and are like, man, I want some of that. Again, I said it last week, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God is not a great way of starting a conversation with someone who doesn't believe that the Bible is authoritative. It's not. It's confusing. And so instead, live such lives among the pagans and heathens that they see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Amen? To support someone who is working against the true Christian message is to incur that person's guilt. And, and here's where, where we can 
there's some serious consequences for this. If I know someone is teaching false doctrine, it's actually my biblical responsibility to stop that. And sometimes that can seem harsh because we live in, a, in the age of tolerance, allegedly, um, where I need to tolerate someone else's behavior even though I don't agree with it. And that's true to a certain extent. The exception is when we're talking about Christian behavior. Uh, again and again, the Bible says that you need to defend Christian doctrine. It says you need to defend what we believe against outside attack or inside, rather, attack. And so while I, I am tolerant of a lot of people and a lot of what people believe if they claim not to be Christians, if someone claims to be Christian, that gives me the right, the biblical right as the pastor, to make sure that what they're teaching and expounding is actually goes in, goes against the Word of God. Like, it, it measures up to the Word of God and doesn't go against it in any way. Does that make sense? And so you have to understand that there, there are subtle differences. So I don't want you to hear me say, now go out and start hammering people who don't know Jesus or don't know the Bible and say, look, this is the Bible, this is what it says, look, I am to hold you accountable. No. That only works if they already believe the Bible. And so that's my responsibility as a pastor to make sure that if you claim to be Christian, that you're living your life in accordance with what the Bible says. Because John here, in this book, in the book previous, said if you don't know God, if you don't love, if you don't follow his commandments, then you are not saved. And that should be ample warning for us from this point. And that's the book of Second John. That's it. It's over. Done. And so as we end our time together this morning... I just want to reiterate this point. We need to be hospitable to the world. We need to show them how attractive Christianity, true Christianity, is a marvelous thing. In the song Onward Christian Soldiers, it talks about that we're being one in faith, one in doctrine, one in charity. We need to show that to people who need it. Uh, can you imagine what would happen if the church as a whole actually started acting like what Scripture commands us to do? Not just you guys. Christianity as a whole. Can you imagine what would happen if every church in the city of Bellingham started acting like they took the Bible seriously in what it commands? Can you imagine what would happen if the state of Washington, if every church started acting like they believed what Scripture commanded them to do. Can you imagine what would happen in the United States if every Christian started acting like the Bible expects and demands that they act? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us to come together and to talk about your word and your work. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you be with each one of us today that you guide us in the way that you want us to act, not only to each other as Christians, but also to the world. I ask, Lord God, that you be with each one of us as we show hospitality to our neighbors and our friends and our family and our communities. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit guards our hearts against those who would come in with false teaching and false doctrines. We pray all these things in your son's precious name, in the name of Jesus.
Amen. I would like to invite Heidi up.